design can help us to articulate uh, an understanding of practice that go beyond building. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Charlotte Malter-Barth, urban designer and educator. Charlotte joins us today to discuss her proposal for a global moratorium on new construction. Charlotte, welcome. Thank you, Charles. I look forward. It's so nice of you to join us. Um, I'm interested to ask you about this um, proposal, this initiative that you've been advocating, which is a, a global moratorium on new construction in the built environment. And I, I want to ask you about the origins of that initiative and, and what you hope to occasion or what you hope to accomplish through that proposal. So I can ground some of the concerns that uh, found their way into the moratorium in early research that I did on the political economy of commodities and how those impact the built environment. And those were started with onlook in food systems and um, let's say commodities that are related to nutrition, but very quickly evolved into um, commodities that are related to construction. Um, so everything that relates say to resource extraction, in fact, uh, and uh, a kind of uh, sense that um, the division that exists between say design, material and extraction um, is something that needs to be urgently addressed. So I could say that I grew very more and more critical to um, the way that sustainability is deployed or misused perhaps um, in fields of uh, architecture and construction as also someone who's been in practice and also seeing how the office is a inherent, inherently static entity. Uh, I, I think that a lot of it is, when we talk about sustainability, is leap service, frankly said. And that I was wondering how we could have that conversation in architecture or in design. And then the pandemic hit. And I think that there was this moment, and I, I really used um, that work from Bruno Latour, which he published that work in March 2020, where he was speaking about the opportunity that this was a, 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 an offer to pause, right? He was saying that everything can be stopped, everything can be questioned, uh, interrupted for good. And at the time, I realized that if everything was interrupted, you know, or, and we know that not everything was, but one thing that definitely was very briefly interrupted was the construction site. That somehow in a lot of places was suspended from all the other rules and kept on going. And in that, so grounded in all of these questions, uh, the idea of a moratorium emerge as something that would uh, articulate these needs to stop, but also this question of growth and the way that we perceive construction as something that can fix so many problems. So there I, I kind of, give you a kind of uh, background on how the idea emerged, I would say. 
So barring from Latour, the notion of a, a, an affirmative pause, you know, a positive pause, a moment of reflection, um, the formulation of the moratorium is, is, is your formulation? So yes, uh, the, the idea of a moratorium reconstruction is a formulation I came up with. Um, and I joined forces with another uh, group from uh, uh, B plus, which is an architectural office, uh, which is the architecture office of Arno Brandelhuber and uh, other partners in Berlin in articulating the initiative first as a series of roundtables because it's very much a first format that can be used to debate. It's been very interesting to throw the idea to people and at the moment where it was just that, just an idea, um, see how people would react and what would be the objections and uh, or how people actually perceived it. And you could almost divide these people into two groups, the ones who thought this was extremely interesting and timely and the ones who were like appalled. And, and the ones who were appalled also had points, right? Um, so it was also interesting to listen to that. So the roundtables were very interesting to uh, gather voices uh, from everywhere. So from the global majority, from academia, from practice and people coming with various background. And those people were able to articulate ideas about a possible moratorium. What would it entail for the global South? What it would mean for labor forces, um, reflections on office space. So there was a kind of myriad of ideas. And the following roundtables were then focused uh, more specifically on certain aspects. So I was um, happily scratching the office. There was one that was called pivoting practices, which was um, suggesting that one of the issue with the way that design disciplines um, are not really addressing the climate emergency is because the structures themselves are obsolete. And we were looking at you know, alternative offices like uh, Assemble uh, or offices that are working on more horizontal formats. So we were, of course, questioning the kind of uh, top-down, maestro-based uh, patriarchal system of the office as part of the problem, so pivoting practices. Uh, and then we also had one roundtable on non-extractive architecture and thinking about around solutions or like how architecture can actually be part of solutions rather than part of the problem, which it is at the moment. And uh, and then we had one last conversation, which was about uh, seeking policy and actually bringing the moratorium closer to something that would be uh, an initiative discussed in political terms. Um, because first and foremost, the moratorium is a law, right? It's a legal instrument. Um, so that was also part of uh, an interesting development as something that would be, in, in German, there's a term that, that um, that I think is, is very funny. It's a schnapps idee, so it's something you would have very spontaneously. But of course, it was, as I said, grounded in, in larger thinking uh, realms. But how do you actually turn something that is almost a clickbait into something that's actually much deeper? And I think that the moratorium is, has functioned fantastically as a tool to uh, bring to the table people who don't want to have that conversation also uh, as much as touch on, you know, say if you wanted to have a conversation on care, which the moratorium is obviously touching upon, 
then you would attract completely different people, right? Um, so the, the kind of usual feminists will join, but the industry partners won't. Uh, but now people feel threatened. So there's a kind of sense of urgency and threat. So I don't know exactly uh, what makes people react, but it definitely makes people react. It speaks to the clarity and strength of the formulation itself. I mean, it's five words and unambiguous. Have you found anyone, Charlotte, who is ambivalent about those five words in our field? It strikes me as, as you suggested, it's immediately clear. It, you know, in a way, it, you don't even need the paragraph or the set of pillars or programs. You know, the, the five-word formulation is the project, right? Have you encountered any audiences who don't find it compelling, either positively or negatively? I mean, one of the words that makes the whole thing contentious is perhaps global. Um, because, of course, you know, who is to say where you can build and what, right? So I think that has been the most contentious point. Of course, it's easy to say from our consolidated uh, infrastructure-rich environment that uh, you should stop constructing because we mostly have stand of development that, that is allowing for our societies to function. And um, there are other places where there is under-equipment but as soon as you start scratching that, uh, you also realize that this is much more complex. And I like to give the example of Cairo, which I have colleagues uh, from the office cluster who have brought that to the, to the fore. Cairo is a city that has 12 million vacant units, and yet there are new buildings constantly being erected. So the question is, what is being built and for whom? Um, so I think there is also a need to confront these questions beyond the kind of um, moral confines that the term global brings. And I think this is something that is also attached to the, to the notion or let's say to the political concept of degrowth. Uh, it has been also attacked for being in a way elitist, right? I think global has been perhaps the most contentious aspect. And then, you know, new construction, of course, has brought up other aspects. Um, it has been understood that if you say you don't want to build new, you're basically falling into the not in my backyard groups. So you would be against any kind of change in zoning and, and things like that. So the, the kind of, and this is of course, to be understood on the backdrop of the abdication of most public housing production, for instance, or the changes of uh, zoning uh, that is uh, you know, very, very damageable to, to the ways that um, people can find access to housing. So, but at the same time, um, it was very, it's also a very useful term to think about what is new construction and how you can actually take stock of the existing and all that. So the terms, uh, as soon as you also, again, dig a little bit further or scratch away the surface, you can see that there are a lot of other entry points into these questions that it seems as a profession, we have not been really able to, to move beyond. I think the kind of mindsets uh, of a world without scarcity, which is you know, driving the production of housing or the built environment today is something that, that we must uh, really move away from. I mean, both adjectives strike me as doing quite a lot of the work. I mean, a moratorium on construction is clear enough in any language. The idea of new, presumably imagines a situation in which there is still construction. You're not proposing for the, the abolition of design professions nor the 
abandonment of construction altogether. It's simply new construction. And this suggests to me both a profound critique of our Western, certainly our North American US political economy, but equally a critique of the fee for services design professions and their you know, imbrication in a culture of growth. I mean, you've been quite clear about your critique of the notion that we can grow ourselves to sustainability. Many of the schemes that you mentioned, the practices and the discourse around sustainability emerge as kind of optional add-ons. You know, These are things that you can choose to, you can elect to engage in or not, whether they be kind of you know, tabulations or kind of um, actuarial schemes of accountancy to suggest how, how green we're all being. Um, at the same moment, tell us about how you think the design professions might transition toward this. Like, what might it mean for us to think about practicing as an architect or an urban designer in the context of uh, working only with reconstruction or existing building material? Yeah, I, I guess that, that touches upon uh, this idea of pivoting practice. I think that, um, so uh, past beyond the first fear when you think, oh my God, new construction, um, I think it becomes very obvious that this is a fantastic design brief, actually, um, that eliminates some of the most horrible outputs that we have seen in terms of construction and says, look at what you have and work with that. And I think that there's also a kind of, perhaps there is also a, a critique about what is being an architect today or what is being a designer today, um, which would need to shift towards. So I mentioned, you know, the kind of highly hierarchical structures that uh, the classic practice is kind of um, still relying upon the kind of single authorship. We can also talk about the exploitative forms of labor power that uh, offices are relying upon. And the question of whether this is allowing the profession to pivot and to reform itself to, to invent uh, the solutions that we actually need, right? So uh, if we move beyond that, a knowledge that we are also dealing with sustainability as something that is very much of a, a veneer and not something that is a, a deep commitment to the way an office would work and to the construction site. So I think these things are very um, tied together. So the better forms of practice that would prioritize preservation, care as a kind of uh, very loaded political world, but also resource stewardships, uh, design for disassembly, circular economy, reuse, um, repair as new ways to be uh, doing face production, right? So I think that the, there is this idea that, so it's, it's not clear whether we can design ourselves out of the crisis. I think that this is still a pending question, but we definitely need to engage in this kind of remedial work. Uh, and I think that those touch upon larger questions that speak about you know, democracy, race, uh, economy, ecology, of course. So there is also a question of value shift. I mean, you were mentioning you know, very pragmatically fees and things like that. So is there a value shift that can happen at that moment when we cease to speak about design briefs as, as designing new things versus perpetuating uh, building structures or constructed environments versus this idea that, that architecture exists uh, as a kind of almost hostile process within this kind of extractive uh, systems, right? Charlotte, one of the, I think, most uh, both provocative and effective aspects of the formulation a global moratorium on new construction is that it immediately foregrounds the role of um, architects and designers in the construction of commodities, right? The, the idea you mentioned, Cairo, 
One thinks of the ghost cities in Spain or East Asia, uh, many, many examples in North America where, you know, huge percentages of parts of uh, parts of cities are essentially empty as kind of commodity investments, right? So I think one of the more effective aspects of this is this notion of foregrounding what has traditionally been understood as a kind of the craft of the architect or the idea of us making choices about the built environment in a way which is more public or more civic. And this moratorium proposal immediately foregrounds the notion that so much of the energy of the design profession, so much of the built environment is really, you know, particularly in the context of the United States, increasingly toward the production of commodities and the commoditization of uh, both you know, the work of designers and equally the labor of the designers working in those in those shops. I, I heard recently a reference by a well-known architect referring to one of their clients, a commercial developer coming in to quote, buy a building from them. Right. And that just, you know, just reinforces the sense that, you know, architecture has become, especially, you know, in the United States, so complicit in this notion of um, economic growth through the making of commodities and the kind of trading in commodity markets. And I think you very effectively articulated how a concern for care or maintenance or equity with respect to labor relationships and the notion of um, you know, designers as laborers in addition to uh, nascent professionals. This strikes me as among the most you know, provocative and powerful aspects of the formulation. One of the ways in which this formulation has made itself evident is through your uh, spring uh, 2022 uh, design studio at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. Tell us about that studio and what you hope to accomplish with it. So the studio would be a way to test, right? How would a moratorium on new construction actually play out in different contexts? That's why I removed global, um, because I want students to select their own sites and I want students to select sites that they have intimacy with as a way to apply what Donna Haraway calls uh, situated knowledge. So in a way you take for face value this idea that you consider space as an active subject rather than a passive subject, So, which you could read as a thinly veiled critique of the modernist legacy. So in a way, I would say students would have that site and they have that intimacy to that site and they would gather intel on um, the way that construction is happening, but also have a kind of clearer diagnosis about what's going on in terms of housing, in terms of space production, um, in terms of real estate markets and things like that. And then craft or let's say redact the moratorium together with a set of policies in order to shift basically the way that we produce space. And um, it's going to be a very exciting exercise um, that we're starting with looking at the law as a tool to change the built environment because it already does that. So uh, we have a, a set of laws that we are investigating, existing laws that already regulate the built environment and, you know, from rent control to the kind of decree on, on land by Lenin <laughs> and from... New York fire escapes to the new changes in uh, zoning law that the city of Olympia has passed last year on changing the single family house zoning to a multiple situation. So we have a kind of an array of laws that we know will affect or have affected the built environment um, as an entry point into this question of a moratorium. Also with the idea that the law is something that should be part of the tool sets of designers. Um, since we are so much affected by it in a way. 
And then we'll move into looking at how architects or designers have preferred not to. So the kind of, of course, literary reference, but you know, how, how have uh, other designers walk that line between practice and political engagement or between uh, a practice that is refusing to be, well, refuse to follow the way that most practices actually uh, conceive their uh, contribution to designing the built environment. And of course, the Lacaton Vassal reference uh, for this Place Leon Rocuc in Bordeaux, which they decided not to, but proposed a um, shift in maintenance to the municipality instead of redesigning the whole place, I think is a kind of paradigmatic example, but also other ways to deal with the existing. And there, you know, radical preservation um, and the question of reuse are, of course, at the forefront. One question I've got, Charlotte, has to do with the relationship between the proposal and its kind of legal structure. So you, you began uh, the conversation by situating a moratorium as a kind of legal instrument. And it's very much in contrast to the, the more dominant tradition of opting in for various sustainability metrics or certifications or other embellishments. This, in fact, would, would require necessarily a kind of legal, a legal framework or a set of legal frameworks. And yet at the, at the same moment, you've, you've already acknowledged that there's a kind of contradiction between that and doing so globally, right? And there's something about that tension that clearly seems uh, quite productive. Do you imagine that you know, elements or aspects of this might be thought about from a, a legal or a policy framework differently in different places? And if so, are there certain places, certain jurisdictions, like typically these kinds of movements, you know, social movements and professional changes, they typically have you know, certain loci, right? They, they begin in certain places in certain cultures and then they metastasize if they're successful. Are there places where these things are already beginning or are there certain, certain grounds that are more fertile for this kind of thinking? Well, I think this is, uh, you know, an incredibly useful question. How do you apply something that is claiming global relevance to a local realm? I, um, I think that the, the kind of thinking that is articulated for us by thinkers like Bell Hooks, for instance, who said that we need to, we need to root our imagination to be able to think beyond our reality is a very useful way to think about this question. So if you're taking that moratorium, how is that going to play out in that particular locality, for instance? And this is where I, I will be extremely curious to follow up uh, on uh, the kind of grounded uh, application of the moratorium. We looked at precedents because I think that's also a very useful uh, way to, to enter this question. So there are moratoriums. They can be, you know, three months to up to one year, and um, they're motivated by various reasons. So, for instance, there are moratoriums that were put in place by the city of Boston on construction during the coronavirus uh, in March 2020. There were only three months and they were lifted. Um, there are other moratoriums that are, uh, much more politically motivated. And I found those, of course, very interesting. I'm thinking about the Costa Brava example, where on the Spanish coast, uh, the local government basically suspended construction for a year in order to assess uh, and also to kind of investigate, let's say, fishy investments um, into this kind of uh, what were generated this completely, uh, you know, out of hand uh, urbanization of the, of the Mediterranean coast. 
There are other interesting schemes of moratorium that are targeting specific buildings. So I'm thinking also about moratorium uh, in, I think, the city of Boston. There was a conversation about moratorium on prison. Uh, so the kind of carceral spaces is being targeted um, and having a moratorium on them because uh, they are contentious and there is need to discuss within communities um, and or federal moratoriums that are uh, kind of like blankets across the country for specific I think military development or things like that. So th those are the ones that we were able to find as applied, then there is a bunch of moratoriums that are called for, which are then um, you see you see that the moratorium is used by communities, by uh, political activists um, as a way to address a particular topic. So I think we could maybe locate ourselves on that corner. Um, I'm thinking about moratoriums on nuclear power plants that are called for. Uh, and then there is, of course, the very contentious moratoriums that uh, have been, I believe, never really applied in uh, Israel, for instance. So there is also the moratorium is really a kind of political legal tool that is extremely useful to articulate questions about the built environment. Uh, and one of the things that we want to do with uh, investigating these laws, for instance, that I mentioned earlier, is to locate them on the political spectrum. So who are the forces, who are the actors that advocate for a particular change of the law, for a moratorium on this, on that, uh, you know, because I think things might not look, or things might look different than one would assume um, as soon as one tries to understand why uh, certain groups would prefer not to build here or there or this or that. In thinking about locale and uh, the range of actors, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the idea that framing it around construction, new construction in particular, means that there are an enormous range of actors from, you know, citizens in a civil society, members of a community, residents of a, of a, of a locale, through the, the laborers of the designers themselves, through policymakers, the supply chain that delivers materials or don't in the context of the pandemic. All of those are potential levers, right, to be able to apply pressure in that regard. Are you concerned at all or have you thought about or considered the ways in which reducing or prohibiting new construction might increase economic disparity or inequitable access to housing, for example? You and I work in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a lovely town and has you know, essentially you know, prohibited new construction at a, at a level that means that the housing prices continue to go up. The most recent uh, data that I saw suggested that we were something like 50,000 uh, individuals underhoused compared to how many will need to be housed. And yet in our political economy, there seems to be very few examples of, uh, you know, kind of public housing uh, that's been successful in the post-Reagan era as we've essentially devolved to a new neoliberal economy or abdicated responsibility is the formulation you've used that the public sector is no longer responsible. So are you concerned that a moratorium on new construction might limit our capacity to house ourselves? And is there something inequitable at, at heart about that? Well, of course, there is that the contentious edge, no, that this holds. If you've stop constructing and you basically limit the creation of real estate value, I guess, to a certain extent. It means that the existing stock is increasingly valid, right? Or valuable. So there is definitely a problem there that, that we need to address. And um, this is why I was mentioning in this kind of testing 
the fact that the moratorium would be accompanied by a set of other policies. So I, I do believe that there is the need to address ownership structures, access to housing. Um, and, and here you can really see how some of the aspects can be tackled by um, addressing questions of vacancy, for instance, or eviction laws and other you know, legal frameworks that limit access to housing. I mean, the kind of appalling situation of public housing, I mean, the kind of abdication, let's just call it like that, abdication of the state to provide uh, affordable housing and like handing this to the private sector has just you know proven that it's a failure. So the current situation also showed with like people being unhoused, skyrocketing and the kind of fragility of uh, so many people to really uh, access housing uh, means that there are so many other aspects of the laws that can that should be addressed. So I'm talking about access to housing um, and ownership. And I think that uh, in a way that is something that the moratorium, because it's a moratorium, it suspends something for a certain time. So it's not something that should be, you know, kind of blanket and forever. I think there is this notion of, um, of temporality that is important. And of course, the idea that we need to look at ownership and vacancy and access to housing in parallel to that. I'm interested to, to, to ask you about the notion of, you know, you mentioned degrowth. Of course, there are other precedents and other both uh, kind of discourses and practices around the idea of a pause. But I think a part of what you're suggesting, Charlotte, is this notion of the, the, the affirmative pause, which is intentful and temporal, that is not it's not in perpetuity, it's not everywhere for all time, but rather a pause with respect to having a moment of reflection. You know, in your earliest you know, comments about it, you framed it in terms of the, the pandemic and COVID and the idea of, well, having paused, we now see we can reconceive things. You know, aspects of our entire world have changed in the past 20 months or so. Um, and in that regard, can you say something more about the kinds of reflection or the kinds of pause that you, or the kinds of ideas that might appear might come to us from that pause and also like how long a time frame might we imagine like how much we've been now in this pandemic we've been changed for 20 months or so is this a you know you mentioned three months in boston is it six months is it a year does that increment matter and how much is enough and what about the secondary response you know from that time period first perhaps to ground it into you know precedence of course um we can think of the limits to growth, uh, the Venice Charter, reuse, reduce, recycle, um, or the emergent networks of decolonial degrowth uh, conversation. In a way, I would say it's in the air. You know, it's not that I don't claim newness in that. I'm just capturing it and finding a kind of good way to articulate it so that we can have that conversation, which I think has been successful um, so far. And about the kind of specificity of, you know, time. Um, I would be very curious, again, that, that is where the studio comes really handy to testing these ideas. Uh, how long is enough for a pause? And I think that the, the moratoriums that we looked at in terms of precedents that were suggesting time, a time frame that would be enough to to articulate alternative thinking, or even to just take a hard look at the situation. For instance, speak of a year as a minimum, a meaningful 
time frame for revisiting situation that we have, but also this idea of a way to reduce or to think about extraction as something that we could uh, shift away from. So how do you actually do that? Uh, you need to look at the existing modus operandi and how this can be achieved. So I think maybe it's it's more, the year is more to take a hard look or to take, a, to take stock. And then we would need to think about what it means to extend that um, or to extend it for longer time spans. I think this is uh, very much open. I mean, it's a, it's a thought experiment, right? So I, I hope that some of the answers would uh, will emerge from studio work. I, I want to ask about the potential or the implication of this proposal for uh, preservation conservation. You, you've talked about care. I could imagine maintenance. I could imagine a range of other discourses and practices that, that we might associate with certain progressive ideas about the built environment. But, but from what you've said, I, I take to think of as a part of the project, but more directly, your project is is focusing on a, a pause of the relationship between you know designers and the reproduction of of uh, commodities through the making of, of the built environment. Um, in that regard, does your proposal imply or explicitly address the state of preservation and conservation practices? I, you know, I think this is a conversation that we've been having on this series with many uh, architects and urbanists that preservation and conservation seems to be at the center of so many conversations today. Uh, and is that relevant to your proposal? Well, you know, if new construction stops, um, then clearly we need to look at the current building stock and it, it should be revalued, right? So everything and not just buildings, but also infrastructures and materials. So it means you will also look at buildings, um, not only for what they are as, you know, architecture, but also what they are as materials. So there is also this kind of uh, concept of urban mining, which um, could be could be thrown into that. Uh, but of course, it's, it's very much looking at this uh, building stock and thinking about the value of supporting care labor uh, and, and those who carry that care labor, of course. Um, uh, but, but of course, you need to look at this and think about uh, demolition as something that is, you know, highly problematic and deployed as a as a tool uh, to solve, and we don't know exactly what it is solving. Um, in in so many uh, governments, uh, I mean, I can give you the example of France where demolition is really used um, uh, in in ways that are highly problematic. It sends terrible signals to the people that are living in the areas where buildings are being demolished. But it also, so there is also the the, the, the architects crying about the values of these beautiful modernist uh, icons that are being demolished. But also, it's de facto taking away from housing stock, and not and these are not, never being replaced. We know that the numbers never adds up. Um, so France has been demolishing. Uh, myriads of uh, public housing or what they have uh, called problematic housing, buying the units because they are kind of in, in states of disarray and basically taking it, them away from uh, these kind of markets that is, um, that is already depressed where people can find affordable housing and also um, at affordable prices. So the question of preservation um, is very important um, but I, I like to take it also critically because there is also a whole corner of preservation that is um, that is co-opted by conservatives, uh, by people that use this as a way to 
uh, I mean, very much not in my backyard. Then look at the, our very pristine, beautiful little uh, urban context, and we want to keep it that way. And preservation laws are then instrumentalized uh, to keep everyone away, right? So I think that this is something that absolutely needs to be challenged. Um, I'm actually quite critical to optic preservation. I think that um, there are many things that can be kept in the building also because of its kind of uh, embedded carbon energy. By optic, you're referring to a kind of facadism, right? The tendency to kind of keep the skin, yeah. Exactly, and be like, oh, this is, look at our beautiful building. It shouldn't be changed. And and at the same time, I would say, use the term elitism that is at times attached to uh, the way that preservation is being played out. Uh, is, is something that absolutely needs to be challenged. And uh, that's why it's interesting to locate these kind of initiatives in the political spectrum, because if you identify who are the group lobbying for um, certain laws of preservation, you will see that they are not um, where you would expect them to be. They're preserving that because uh, either it has a legacy that might be problematic or it is because they're really uh, keeping out uh, potential uh, newcomers. If we think of the example of Jane Jacobs, uh, on the one hand, you know, kind of op- opposition to urban renewal and big infrastructure projects in places like Toronto and in New York, of course, this was allied and part of really what's I think now viewed as a kind of upper middle class kind of kind of bourgeois, you know, uh, appropriately kind of maintaining a certain uh, a certain decorum. Would you also agree that you know preservation can often lapse into a kind of material forensics without the kind of critical point of view. I think, you know, I think one of the challenges as conservation questions come to be the center of all of the issues around the built environment, or many of them at least, the question I would ask is like, is conservation, you know, does it, does it have enough critical and intellectual, you know, kind of backstory to it? Is there enough of, of a critical point of view in the field to support this new uh, prominence? I mean, I have been in contact with a few people that have been very critical about the way that preservation is being played out in the U.S. in particular. Um, And I know I'm familiar with the French and the Swiss context where preservation is, you know, it's a dogma when it's applied. It means you can't actually, I think, for instance, in Switzerland, you're not allowed, if you live in a house that is uh, under preservation status, you're not allowed to pin posters on the wall because the wallpaper is also preserved. So, you know, and and at the same time, the city of Zurich, for instance, uh, trashes entire estates to build new. And you want, I think the the question is like, is there a, is there, is there common sense? I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with certain people that would call for radical preservation as something to be understood as in fact being critical to the way that preservation is being played out today. So I'm, uh, I'm actually quite uh, confident that there might be a shift in the way that we understand, especially if we were to stop building new. So we, we're going to have to change um, the ways that we live in the buildings that we have. So that can't be uh, freezing uh, the state. We've had a, a very productive conversation with Jorge Otero Payos, who is a director of Columbia's preservation program and editor of the journal Future Interior along these lines. And I, I'm hearing this from a number of colleagues that I find quite convincing that preservation conservation seems to be reaching a kind of critical point in terms of its uh, centrality to the design uh, professions. 
Charlotte, you've described you know the formulation in in a in a uh, your reading of Latour's call for a, a productive or positive pause uh, in the context of the of the pandemic. You've mentioned uh, the series of roundtable uh, discussions, which I'm presuming will continue in various forms. The now the spring 22 uh, design studio. Where do you see the initiative going? Are there ways in which people can join this conversation with you? So I was actually invited to uh, write a little pamphlet. So I'm going to do that. That's going to be the next output with Sternberg Press. So it's maybe something that's closer to a pamphlet where um, the ideas that have emerged through the conversation at the roundtables, through the studios, through various conversation with colleagues um, will find their way, I guess it will also give some background into where moratorium is coming from and where it could go. Uh, of course, with this idea that it's an idea grounded in um, a critique of extractivism, a critique of the disengagement of planning professions uh, in the face of, of the emergency that we face, uh, also grounding it in ideas of ecofeminism and, uh, you know, a critique of our current modus operandi as a design discipline. But I think that there's also an, an, a, a promise in, in the moratorium, which is to lay out the fact that design can play an important role in, in inventing futures that are somehow liberated from these, let's call them debilitating structures in which we find ourselves uh, entrenched. So in, in a way, is there, uh, design can help us to articulate uh, an understanding of practices that go beyond building, I would say. So against the crisis of imagination. So, so the skills and the organization, uh, organizing abilities of designers will be necessary to think about new, uh, new ways to, to build. And, and I like to use this uh, quote from Mina Haga. She talks about, we have to uh, stop constructing to start building or the other way around. I never know, but you get it. It's the idea that we need to rebuild things. We re need to rebuild our structures. Um, and I think that it's really important to, to see this as a design brief, right? We will look forward to the pamphlet, uh, Charlotte. You, you'll be nailing this to which doors? Doors of the GSD? Is that, is that where we can see that posted? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll look forward to it. Charlotte Molterbart, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.